Okay, well, welcome now to episode nine of the Daz and Daz podcast. So Darren Hill joins me from a local shopping centre. Uh, how are you, Darren? <laughs> I'm enjoying the parade of um, of all the shoppers. Yep, I'm good. That's how committed we are to our listeners. We will drop tools anywhere <laughs> and just throw up a pod whenever we possibly can. And I know, Darren, you've been particularly uh, enjoying the NBA the last week because the Milwaukee Bucks, their last 10 games, they're 7-3, and three, and they've now won three in a row. They're only, I think, what, a uh, game and a half or two games out of the Eastern Conference playoff race. So you'd be delighted. The Bucks are back in playoff conversation. Well, if one can delight from schizophrenia, deja vu, and roller coasters all at the same time, it is a delight, Daz. I mean, this team, this team is totally capable of losing 12 out of 14, um, getting blown out by the Pelicans, Sixers, and Nets, and then going toe to toe with um, the Cavs and the Spurs, and then out of nowhere, right, you just sort of go, just when I'm getting ready to start cranking up Draft Express and refreshing Tankathon every day, they go and sort of bomb the Clippers and the Raptors in back-to-back nights. And then I was expecting them to have the typical, you know, meltdown, letdown in Philly. And now Tony Snell goes and buries five threes, and here we go. So yeah, I guess they're, it's fun to watch them win again. But now I have to sort of shut down Draft Express and Tankathon a little bit. So well, they're legitimate wins days. too. Like the Clippers have actually won two in a row, I think, and and won well. Like they beat Boston quite comfortably uh, last night. So they're not. Everyone was sort of like, "Oh, what's happened to the Clippers when they lost to the Bucks?" But the Clippers have actually played well since that game. So I don't think it's just. I think it's it's they're doing some legit wins there. I think they are. Um, it's not just been an aberration where you go, well, they've just got hot at a little, little bit of time. I think that's probably more the case for Phoenix that we want to talk about as well. But with the Bucks, yeah. this is something that I don't know if they can replicate it. I mean, I think if they make the playoffs, the chances are obviously they're going to be out relatively quickly. But who knows if they could keep winning. You're not looking at an 8 seed potentially. You could even move up to the 6 or 7 spot. And then you're avoiding Cleveland in that first round. And who knows what happens from there for the Bucks? Because my brain isn't capable of holding on to schizophrenia deja vu. My thought process is I'm going to literally have to take this game by game. That is as volatile a performance on the ends of the spectrum as you can, as you can imagine. But to your point, from a basketball perspective, with Chris Middleton had a He's looked more like Chris Middleton far faster than we thought that has made a significant difference on court. He's the secondary playmaker that you and I talked about probably seven or eight pods ago, which is the ideal complement to Giannis. So now I've got two the backcourt players do playmaking, whilst Brogdon then can sort of do a little more spot-ups with his 43% from downtown. Um, it's opening up more space for cutting, which the Bucks have been historically very good at and the and the wing defense right Middleton's getting back to more sort of that lateral quickness far faster than I thought so the the genuine on-court product is better where this this idealized almost idealized Giannis with the running mate of Chris Middleton is is working 
the sad reality that we've got to come to grips with is that it coincided with Jabari going down. It happened literally the same day. And so what I what I'm rejecting amongst my Bucks cohort of fans is that they're in this well, we told you Minton's better than Jabari. Jabari's loser is not to win. He's the next Carmelo Anthony. And I think it's a it's a false, very false discussion. I mean, this team, if it had Jabari, I think would be as close to as what this current roster could could become. So it is a shame that, that Jabari is not here to witness it. But um, the on-court product is better with, with the healthy Middleton. I think, so, I think the larger point is, and I was talking about this with a friend of mine uh, last or Monday night, and we were talking about is it better to go for the eight seed, go for the playoffs, or just tank the season away, for want of a better word, and go for a higher draft pick. And he, he sort of said, well, look, I think it's always better to go for the playoffs because what you know, what's the difference? You're going to get the fifth, 14, 15 a draft pick. It's not going to be the franchise changer, but... I said this season's been unlike most others in the sense that the difference between, for the most part, the difference between getting the fourth pick and the 13th pick, for example, at the moment it's six wins, but probably a week or so ago, it might, I think it was about three or four wins. So it was really it was a point where teams had to make a decision where do we start making some trades and, and getting rid of some better players, bringing some more young players in and aim for a higher pick? Or do we go for the playoffs? I mean, where do you stand as a, as a fan of a team that's in that sort of range? Where do you stand? Would you have preferred to look at this now and see Milwaukee at 24 and you know, 38? Or are you happy that the fact that they're going for it now and maybe they will have a little bit of a sneaky playoff run uh, in a couple of months' time? So there's two aspects to the conversation. It's a, it's a, it's a good framing, Daz. The two aspects that I think about is when I hear the language of should they tank or should they be trying to get a better, get a better draft pick, I force the conversation to say, who is the they in this conversation? Because there's the general management of the they, imagining of if their objective is to um, build a championship team, there are people in the they category, the front offices, who do believe that one must lose in order to gain those assets. So there's, that's one day. When you look at the court and the coach and the players, and this is where I get I get really frustrated sometimes, is there's, there is 0%. It's not a thought. It's not a conversation. It's not an idea. It's Twitter noise and fan jargon about should we tank. So from that perspective, when I look at the court, that is not happening in a Giannis team. There's not a relaxation recipe for a couple nights back. To, that is not going to happen and shouldn't happen. So if the question then is framed, do I believe that the Bucks' leadership should do things to try to have the team lose more basketball games? I then ask the follow-up question. I go, such as what? Take a healthy Chris Middleton and ask him not to play? To take a highly productive player like Malcolm Brogdon and bench him for an unproductive player like Rashad Vaughn to take a perhaps a free agent to be um, question mark like Greg Monroe and substitute him with Thon Maker. I go, if you do the actual things that would make you lose, you have significant um, consequences around chemistry, culture, 
um, trust and those sorts of things. So with a team like the Bucks, this is not a this is a false narrative for a team like the Bucks because there's a big big difference between where the Bucks are at and where the Sixers are at, or where Phoenix is at, right? Where Phoenix, by contrast, can they have a a budding culture where they can ask a player like Tyson Chandler, who's on a long-term deal, on a long-term deal to say, you know what, Tyson, we want to give this Williams kid a try and make sure Len gets some minutes and want to play some small ball with Marquise Chris. And it takes a certain relationship and a certain player to say, you know what, that's okay, coach. I'm going to do that, such that it doesn't disrupt the competitiveness of the team. If that were to happen in Milwaukee, and yes, you have nice guys like Monroe or Brogdon who would smile and nod, but you destroy the competitive fabric of the team for a team like Milwaukee, right? Who's, who's trying to rally around their star. So I don't know if that answers the question, Daz, but I go, it's a false conversation for Milwaukee, but a very, very real one for teams who are, they have no idea if they even have a star on their roster yet, like Philly or Phoenix or Orlando or, or that sort of club. Yeah, I'd argue. I mean, there's certainly. I mean, the, the, there's no question in my mind the Lakers are tanking. They are doing the definition of tanking, and I'd even throw Luke Walton in on that for this point. I watched them. They were in a close game uh, last week against Charlotte, which was rare for the Lakers. And I thought, I'll turn this one on and see how they go. And uh, with five minutes to go, Luke Walton throws in this guy that's on a ten-day contract. I can't remember his name right now, but um, it might have been Zubac or something, I'm not sure but anyway, threw in guy that was on a 10 day contract uh, hadn't really played with the team at all, they're out there in crunch time you're supposedly trying to win a close game and you've got a, a five man rotation that's never played together before, completely and, and you know, um, not surprisingly it fell to pieces and Charlotte ended up coming home with a reasonably comfortable win I think when I turned over, the Lakers were up six, and I think they lost by eight. So they really went to pieces. But as we've spoken about before, it doesn't make sense for the Lakers to be trying to win. They really need to make sure they're in that um, bottom three teams. They're now well entrenched in that with Phoenix's little run now, uh, where they, I think they're two games behind Phoenix, so they're highly unlikely to move out from that number two spot, uh, where we're looking at Tankathon now. So that gives them obviously a much better chance of staying in that top yeah. three, keeping those picks. Um, but to your point on Phoenix, Phoenix are sort of, I guess some people would look at that and say, yep, you're resting Tyson Chandler. Um, you're resting, you've said Brandon Knight, we're not even going to try you anymore. We're going to go with Tyler Eulis. And you might think, well, they're, they're tanking now as well. But I don't necessarily think that that doesn't translate to on the court sometimes because, you know, as Phoenix have found out they've sort of uncovered a couple of uh, un- sort of unpolished gems, if you like, in Tyler Eulis and uh, who's the other guy, Williams, who's the uh, the power forward. Um, and they've won three in a row, and they've been three good wins. Like they've beaten Boston, was one, um, I think, was OKC, was another that they won. So they're actually beating playoff caliber teams. Alan Williams was the guy I was trying to think of. And Earl Watson's doing a really good job as well. Like, he's been in there, just you know, throws Alan Williams in, says, don't do anything outside your comfort zone. You're just going to be a pick-and-roll guy. 
uh, take rebounds, you know, defend well. Uh, Tyler Eulis has outplayed uh, Isaiah Thomas the other day in a really nice performance. So they've uncovered some some really good pieces, and all of a sudden there's some excitement, I think, around Phoenix's fan base, I would imagine, about the direction of this franchise, because I've, I just randomly watched all three of those games, and uh, they, look, they look like the real deal, and Marquise Chris is having a real quiet sort of season, and not too many people have been talking about him, but he's looked really, really good as well. I mean, he shot four or five from three in their win over Charlotte, the other day, so he's showing some range, which that was the big knock on him, you know, very athletic guy, but probably can't shoot, so he's shown some flashes where he can shoot, uh, and we know he's going to be really good on the defensive end, he got the key steal in the game against the Celtics, uh, and before he kicked it out to Euless for the three, so I guess, what, what are you thinking in terms of what Phoenix are building, uh, they've got Devin Booker, they've got Eric Bledsoe, they've got Tyler Euless, they've They've sort of discovered something in Alan Williams. I mean, he's never going to be much more than just a bench piece. Uh, but Marcus Chris looks really good. I guess the big question for them is, if they finish in that top three or even top two, what, are they, what direction do they go in the draft? Because this is a point guard-heavy draft, and that's not really a position that they look like they need at the moment. I guess two parts of the question, what are you thinking about where they're headed, uh, and what do you think they should be looking to do in the draft? So this is a great juxtaposition of the Lakers and the Suns um, in study and contrast. Um, I'll come back to the Lakers in a minute. But on the Phoenix side, where I go, this is where I think the tanking word, I accept its usage when it's the summertime and it's September and it goes into the construction of the roster and how much you're putting on your salary cap. And what Phoenix has done, yes, they'd signed Chandler now a year, almost two seasons ago now, um, and acquired Brandon Knight, right, in that in that deal. But since that point, they've been very, very clear about, about wanting to develop the young players. Devin Booker came out of nowhere, right? That was such a pleasant surprise for them. So I guess Phoenix was kind of waking up going, holy shit, we've got something here from a 19-year-old, right? And so there's this emergent, these unknowns that just emerge over time. You go, holy shit, Devin Booker is a special, special shooter, an offensive force at such a young age that makes you start to rethink, how do we now start to perhaps pivot our roster now around this 20-year-old rather than around a 25-year-old um, Brandon Knight, 27-year-old Bledsoe, and 32-year-old Tyson Chandler? It's suddenly, over a course of a year, gone, holy crap, this guy can ball. At the same time, right, so then the, the way they approached the roster, uh, sorry, the draft last year, right, as everyone well knows, got the two bigs with Chris and Bender near the top of the draft in the trade with Sacramento, and then picked Euless. Was Euless a first-rounder or was he a second-rounder? I'm now blanking on that. Do you remember? I thought he was a first round. He came from Kentucky. I know that. Yeah, um, he was a, I think he was a late. He's a late first rounder, early second round. I think it was a late first. But um, similarly, right? I think they knew Chris, right? Raw, freakish athlete, Dragan Bender, raw, highly skilled, so less athletic but very, very skilled, and probably you know has a lot of learning to do about the NBA game. And then Ulysses, that not you know he's not tiny, but he's not big. He's kind of in between. 
so let's say six one, six two sort of size. So he's kind of at that tweener size, where he's not Isaiah Thomas, where he can be lightning quick, but he's also not a, you know, John Wall six four, six five kind of. Oh, you know, looks like a late first round random pick. Yeah, he was a second round, the thirty fourth pick. Thirty fourth. There you go. Yep. So what's happened is that, um, and I, I similarly, I started paying more attention to Phoenix the last few weeks as well. I go, fucking hell, Tyler Eulis can play. This guy's got a bit of a poise to him. The, the game doesn't look too fast for him. And in a point guard, right, sort of dominated league like we have, I go, that for me is probably even the more important emergence for the Phoenix Suns is they're starting to go, huh, could we start to lock up a backcourt of 20-year-olds with Booker and Eulis, which has me going, could they flip Eric Bloodsoe in the offseason? And then I think that the freakish athleticism Marquis Chris is coming out, um, which I think we all kind of expected. Right? His his college tape was pretty well documented. The guy can jump out of the gym, and if he could just channel his energy, he'd be some sort of force. And so, what I would like to see Phoenix do is stay the course. However, they had to build this culture and the conversation, and seemingly so far, a very healthy manner. They have Tyson go. You know what? I'm cool. I can, I'll be okay with this, right? I'll ride the pine for the last 15, 20 games. Um, but he's a pro-pro. He's a unique character, right? He's, there's probably a dozen of these guys around the league who, are, who could have the, you know, the emotional capacity to handle the, you know, the ego bruising that that might mean. And to let them grow around the young people, I would now like to see them flip Tyson for something of value to a team. I don't know what they could get for him. And more, I think I'd like to see them shot blood so. I think Bloodsell's had a fantastic year and could command some decent trade assets. So I'd like to see them sort of go all in on the youth. Keep their picks, get some assets, see what you have with Ender, Len, Marquis Chris up front. Um, we got TJ Warren, who can play some traditional three, and this backcourt um, with Judas and, and Booker. I go, that's what I would do. Go all in and play the long game. Yeah, I in agree. Con- I agree. Yeah, in- just quickly on, just quickly no, on to touch sure. on the point that you just made. Marquise Chris is shooting a better percentage from three than Brandon Ingram on more shots. So just think about that for a moment. If you had a thought, if someone had said that to you coming out of the draft, and the Lakers, and I heard Luke Walton last week talk about Brandon Ingram, and they saw that they're changing the narrative on what they think he'll become. Uh, I'm... I'm really worried about him. I know you've changed again and you're not as concerned about him, but I'm really worried about him. But I guess the larger point is, I think Marquise Chris, they, they must be feeling, gee, we might have nailed this one. This guy, and, and look, he's only shooting 30, just over 30%, so he's not lighting it up from three, but he has been shooting better lately and he's shown something to show, okay, maybe this guy is going to uh, develop into the player. We've become, because I'm sure, like, like myself, you've always seen these athletic guys come into the draft and you fall in love with them and then they just never quite develop a shot or things like that. That's a really um, that's a really interesting point, Daz. I, um, no, it's really good. You've caught me by surprise. It's a great point. <laughs> I was surprised Where, myself when I just checked the stats now. What I so I'll 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 pull this back into the Lakers. What I so I was all out on Ingram, like, oh my God, what's happened to this three-legged chicken running around the court? Um, so I was all out on him, right, Bastion? 
then I sort of softened when I read. I read a bunch of stuff. I read the Walton transcript, and I sort of read about how they were trying to bring him along. And then I watched him again for three games, and there's, here's a kid what I see. Less so, I won't talk about the three-point shooting. I see a kid catching the ball on the wing, and he's zipping passes into the post at 100 miles an hour that are almost fucking bruising Larry Nance Jr. on the forehead. I see a kid doing it, realizing he's been trapped. Here's a kid who I see, his, he is lost. He is, he has some decent shooting games recently, right? But his instincts are gone or shattered or it's confidence. But I, so I've watched him these last couple of games and I see someone who does not know where he should be or how he should be. Well, I just worry when you get a guy that's drafted and he was drafted as this shooter and they can sit there and say, oh, well, they can, they can try and change the narrative now. But the, the, the rap on him coming out of college was he is going to be a pure shooter. And now you're hearing Luke Walton say, well, I think he might be a point forward. And he actually, I think Bill, at Bill Simmons um, nudging, he, they, they made a Giannis comparison and saying that's the sort of role that he could take going forward. And he said, look, if he's able to become a good shooter, then his ceiling rises up. And that made me really... I would have thought at this stage of his rookie year, they might have been saying, look, if he can develop some playmaking and he can bulk Mm. up a bit, he's going to be really good. But we know he's going to be a great shooter. I reckon that's what they would have said when they drafted him. Now here we are, you know, six months later, and they're saying, well, if he can shoot... You know he's going to be a really good player, but we think he's got some good playmaking. I'm not sure that was the that was a scanning report on him coming out of college. Well, it also betrays the logic, and it betrays um, any human being who watches them play. So I go, I my my impression of that comment is that sounds like they're talking to Brandon through the media by by not focusing on this horrible shooting percentage. His confidence is shot, right? Let's accept that. His confidence is shot from deep. And so my impression is that language is a way of saying, you know what, you know what? Focus on the other parts of your game, mate. Focus on, you know, playmaking, spacing, um, you know, ball handling, shot creation, those sorts of things. And I go, that's what I hear them saying to help kind of keep his confidence afloat. But then I think to you, I go, I violently disagree. If someone actually believes that, then I think they're, they're wickedly, they're not watching basketball. The one thing Giannis had was this instinct to get around the court. He was, he was skinny and he was gawky and he was, had a broken jump shot as well. But he had a fluidity. Right? There's something about his instincts and perhaps growing up in the European game. There was a, a movement about Giannis mm. where you could see, huh, this guy knows how to get to the rack. He knows how to avoid contact and, and use his length to his advantage. He knows how to make plays. I don't see any of that from Ingram. So I do see flashes. You know, I've seen a little bit of flashes, a, a silky 17-footer, which Giannis still doesn't have. But I think he's a bazillion miles away from playmaking, oh, based on no what doubt. I've seen. I mean, look, he's yeah, I, 36 figures at 2.5 assists a game. So it's not like he's shown any great uh, penchant for assist numbers or there's just no i'm a bit in your camp where you sort of what you said originally like i just i'm waiting to see something from this guy um is is it going to be crazy athleticism that's not there's no there's not playmaking that i'm seeing there's not athleticism i'm seeing there's not a great shooter i'm just wondering where where's it going to come from um and i'm not seeing anything whereas marcus chris i've watched him 
and I'll probably watch more Lakers than Suns for whatever reason, but I've watched the last couple of games in particular of, of the Suns, and straight away you can see Marcus Chris has got something. Straight away you can see Tyler Eulis even. Second round pick, he comes in, he's playing defence. I've seen Isaiah Thomas outplayed twice this season. Now, I haven't watched every Celtics game, but I have seen him outplayed twice. Once was by Russell Westbrook, the second was by Tyler Eulis. So that, I think, says... Now, I'm not saying he's in Westbrook's class, obviously, but it showed me this guy can defend and he can still come back. And Because, as we've seen, even with Brogdon, I think, it's one thing for a rookie to defend really well, but sometimes it's hard to get both sides of the game going. This guy was doing it on both ends, um, and it was it was a real pleasure to watch. So I'm, I'm fascinated I'm, what they do with Eric Bledsoe, like you, in the offseason. I'm curious what you think about this observation what you just occurred to me when i think back i've seen a bunch of lakers and Suns recently as well what i see he gets this ghostly look on his face and then oh god now i gotta have quick five second with with coach with walton to get an arm around me oh i did okay i made a screw up i i see this almost it's not fun when nick young's still th- shooting 38 fucking footers and i see d'angelo russell like I'm also, I'm cooling on D'Angelo. Well, this is the problem too with tanking. You develop bad habits and we saw it in Philadelphia. You know, I remember watching Michael Carter-Williams' first ever game and he almost single-handedly beat Miami. Um, Okay, first game of the season, don't get carried away. But across the course of that season where Philly were just aggressively tanking, didn't care about winning, didn't care about developing habits. And some of this is on Brett Brown. I just saw the guy get worse and worse and worse and take bad shot after bad shot after bad shot, make bad decisions. And I'm seeing the same with the Lakers. I'm seeing it with D'Angelo Russell. I'm seeing it with... Just that there's a carelessness about their play yeah. that is not developing good habits. And I'm seeing it from Clarkson's becoming a bit of a chucker. Um, and I really like Clarkson. I think he's, he has the potential to be a great player, but he's just so careless at times when he's on the court. And I wonder how much of this is Luke Walton being new on the job and having, imagine his grooming, right, was with the historically brilliant Golden State Warriors. And I go, does he actually think he's instilling a Golden State Warriors type style of basketball for kids who don't even know how to ride a, you know, to have the training wheels on? So I go, I wonder if this is him learning on the job about to have building block skill sets and, you know, stacking success that they always talk about and, um, you know, developing confidence and in, in developing one weapon in a player in, in one year when they're 19, having an offseason to focus on something else and develop something differently, like we've seen with our two sort of standout 19-year-olds who've gone to superstardom, Kawhi and, and Giannis most recently. Mm-hmm. You know, kids who came in with, uh, you know, averaged eight points a game the rookie year, 18, 19-year-olds, looked a bit, you know, clunky, and suddenly you're at a whole new echelon five years later there was some systemic i gotta give coach kid well year one was larry drew but coach kid a lot of credit for methodically saying Giannis, don't even think about the three-point line mm. right and year one and then suddenly it was all right get your free throw shooting nailed then year three was all about playmaking now year four is about making others better he has systematically built skills on top of skills and i'm sure you'd have a similar dialogue how you've seen Kawhi year after year after year right adding something different to his game so that's that's one question i have a curiosity is is this walton learning on the job the bigger point for me, which relates to your first point about the Lakers, is this: it's symptomatic of when you talk about, you see them tanking, 
but that's symptomatic of a dysfunctional organization. Signing Timothy Mozgov and Luol Deng to a combined $136 million in the offseason, retaining Nick Young, retaining 31-year-old Lou Williams, that's not the signals of a team who has his shit together to say, you know what, we're going to race to the bottom and keep our top three pick. This is a symptomatic of the boss's dysfunction, Mitch Kupchak scrambling to get an extra few wins to keep his job as irrational as that might be. And now obviously this midseason swoon coming in with magic. And I have to imagine Luke Walton's a bit of which direction are we going, right? What, where, what are we and how are we going to move this? So I, I think the quote tanking and the bad habits are also a bit symptomatic of, you know, the on-court product, not really knowing what am I supposed to play Mozgov and Dang or not? Right. They're here for the long term. They're probably both equally unmovable contracts. So what do you do? I had to so, laugh. I saw a, a story just before the trade deadline, and it was a, a story about. Oh, I say it was a story about different rumors, and uh, one of them was talking about Luol Deng, and it was saying, "Gee, Luol Deng, there's a high demand for him. He'd be a great player for one of the contenders." And I just thought, "Gee, Magic's obviously force-fed that story to someone," um, because I thought, you know, at the, at the risk of um, sounding like Danny Ferry, I can't see. <laughs> how Luol Deng is going to help any uh, contender. I mean, I like Luol Deng, probably a good locker room guy, nice veteran to have around, but he's not moving the needle for any contender. Um, and, the, and the thought that someone was going to maybe give up a first-round pick or something for Luol Deng was just laughable, absolutely laughable to me. Well, everyone's got Vlade on speed dial, so you never say never. <laughs> hey, I, Although, I, right. that, that trade's looking better by the day. Can we talk about that next or oh, anyway? No, sorry. Well, we'll talk about Tankathon overall, so we, we can okay. talk about the bottom teams. Oh, so, so I, sorry. Just was to rounding out the the Lakers and the Suns, or I go I, perhaps where the Lakers will end up is a more Phoenix-like approach, which is this um, build everything around the young kid. And so I, every instinct in my body is whether they keep the top three pick or not, or if it conveys this year, um, I still I still foresee in my little crystal ball, a little more schizophrenia for a while. From the I, I don't or... like their roster construction at all. I mean, and that's where I look at Phoenix and you can you can see a bit of a future and you think, okay, it makes sense. And they can throw a Josh Jackson into that into that lineup, let's say. And that, that's going to be, I think, the challenge for Phoenix. If you're picking one or two, do you have the the courage because I think it would be a courageous selection at this stage to, to select Josh Jackson I mean I'm certainly by no means an expert on all the, the college draftees coming out but he's one guy I've had my eye on pretty much right from the start of this college season um, or do you do you go with the more consensus safer picks of one of those point guards that doesn't necessarily fit your roster and what you're trying to build at the moment so I think that's going to be the next big question for Phoenix to ask from the Lakers' point of view, I'm looking at their roster. I've got it in front of me now, and you just think, "Where's the future? What 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 are they build? What are they going to build around?" They're they're, they're clearly hoping to get one of the stars out of this next draft coming up. But even if you get one of the stars out of the draft coming up, then you've got a question: Well, what do you do with D'Angelo Russell? What's the future for Jordan Clarkson? What where are you going with some of these other players? So. Uh, I, I think this is this has got a four or five year rebuild all over it, and you've got Magic Johnson there coming out basically saying, "We want to win now. Uh, they want to try and bring Paul George in." Well, look, if I'm Larry Bird, 
I'm shopping Paul George very aggressively too because if Paul George yeah. would be the worst possible player to bring in because he'll probably just lift them up just enough where they're just sitting in the middle. But he to, to think that Paul George is going to come in and be the saviour of the franchise is, is ludicrous. Yeah, look, I... Um, my crystal ball says this is showtime and it's magic and it's going to be flashy and splashy and they're going to try to get, you know, the form rocking again. I think they're, I prepare myself for, uh, they're going to do whatever they can. If they keep their pick, they're going to find a way to get Lonzo ball because it's local and it's sexy and it's cool. Irrespective of the, of the, you know, else is in the backcourt. That's mm. my read and, or, um, whatever they do in the free agent market, I can imagine they're, they're still going to splash out. So that's, I guess, that was my point. As I see more, I suspect we're going to see more of what I would call schizophrenia, trying to acquire 26, 27, 28-year-old um, free agents and right and stockpiling people in the backcourt. And I go, how is that a winning strategy? You're not, you're going to waste the, the prime years of a um, of a superstar and, and, and blunt the development of the young kids at the same time. I go, that is a, that's a losing strategy. Yeah, so, I think I think they're definitely a mess. I mean, you look at now at, at the Tankathon rankings, and I think I said there before we came on that it feels to me like the top five is pretty much set. Sacramento could still continue to fall, um, but you've got Brooklyn certainly number one, then the Lakers at two. I think the Phoenix, even though they've won the three in a row, I can't see them moving up much past. They're still one and a half games back from Orlando. They're probably going to start the three. Then you've got Orlando, Philly. Neither of those teams looking all that good. Uh, obviously, Philly have lost Embiid for the season. Orlando traded away Barker. So they're sort of um, not looking like they're going to go on any great winning run either. The team, I guess, to keep your eye on is the Pelicans because um, they have not looked good, to say the least. Uh, I think their best performance since the Boogie trade came in the game which Boogie was suspended for... They did give the Spurs a nice game on the weekend, and that was the, probably the only game I've seen them so far where you can sort of look at them and say, ah, oh, I can see how this might work in the right circumstances. But I think that's more about a matchup. The Spurs like to play a slower pace, pound the ball in the post. It was really just playing to New Orleans' strengths. So that's one of the reasons why they did that. I mean, they only got 83 points when they played against the Jazz two nights later, so... Uh, they did beat the Lakers. That's their only win, I think. So I think they're now one and six with Boogie in the lineup, uh, or one and five at the very least. So they are in free fall. But the, their, their, their pick is top three protected. So it'd be just like Sacramento's luck that they would end up in <laughs> as one of the lottery teams and still keep their pick, and Sacramento walk away um, with nothing. But that, to me, that trade's starting to look better and better by the day. Uh, for the Sacramento Kings. Well, it depends on your metric because I, so, the, um, so let me take a half step back. I think what's interesting is you and I are both bang on right about what happened with, is what's happening with the Pelicans, is it took Boogie Cousins thirty seconds to go into another team and go twenty eight and fifteen. That's what he does, yep. right? So it's going to take him no time to score score buckets and clear the glass. Right, So that's exactly what he's done. At the same time, as we've said, I think this is probably the third or fourth time I've mentioned the, the 62 minutes of backcourt play that they shipped out, they now literally employ uh, a revolving door of D-leaguers and a bunch of flotsam and jetsam in the backcourt. 
there is zero playmaking on that team and zero wing play. It is it is embarrassing how bad it is. But I go, and so I go, they, I think they're going to keep losing. And that's where I go. So back to the point of if they keep losing, they increase the probability of that pick being being top three, and they keep it, which would be so perfect for Vlade Divac. <laughs> so at the same time, it's looking better. Boy, howdy, the Pelicans look awful, right? Yeah. So I could see that tick every time if they move up every few percentage points where that increases the probability of landing in the top three. If that doesn't convey you traded Boogie for Buddy, mm. O-M-F-G. Does it turn into a, a 2018 unprotected? Uh, that's a good point, actually. I don't know. I'll just, I'll just look that up now. I mean, they're... they're... Um, what happens to the... Yeah, I'm not Was sure it... what happens to it if if it's not. It because we all... I, I think a lot of people overlooked it. But, it, but let's... Well, I think the, I certainly I did, because I probably wasn't thinking, I guess, thought New Orleans would be better off at first blush. The, you know, the emotional reaction is they're probably going to fight for an eight seed now. Then you watch them for 10 minutes of basketball and look at that backcourt. You're like, oh boy, that's not competitive. But, um... No, but it so, doesn't help that he got he got himself suspended again. He, he's still, look, he's still the same plum. We, we covered this I, last week, so... Yeah, I'm, I'm a little bit... Yeah. Did, you ever, did your wife ever buy like a, a purple handbag and she came home from the mall and goes, hey, honey, look at this amazing purple handbag I got. It's one of a kind. And then for the next month, I'm walking on the streets with people with purple handbags, right? I go, Boogie's got a reputation. I saw the play where he got teed up. I saw referees watching for it. So I, again, I'm not an apologist for Boogie's petulant behavior, but... That was bloody ridiculous. Well, that pick that was is not a technical. Uh, just on that pick. It was top one protected. So it's top three protected this year. It's top one protected in 18, 19, and 20, and then unprotected in 21. Okay. Okay. So it'd but be just I like the Kings pretty... luck. They might get three number ones in a row. <laughs> it would be. <laughs> and, then, and then finally yeah. be good and it turns into a, a, the number 25 yeah. pick. Yeah. But I guess on the Tankathon, I'm looking at the. I think the Sixers are going to keep losing now that they've lost you know, Embiid. I guess yep. isn't coming back. Um, Okafor, you know, I'm not impressed with him, but he's not playing. And so they got a bunch of they got a bunch of. I just saw them play against the Bucks. I didn't know who was out in the court. I literally didn't know a couple of the guys' names. Some some dude called Long. Um, yeah, I guess he's they're tall. just throwing anyone out there now. They're, they're throwing so out they're, all their second round picks that they've had in the D League and things like that and, now. And the fun that Phoenix is having, I haven't looked at the schedules, but. They, my gut tells me you could have a little churn between three, four, five, six, Phoenix, Orlando, Philly, and New Orleans. I think you could see a little bit there if, if Phoenix and Orlando probably have the greatest chance to, to win a few games here and there. But uh, well, Phoenix, I think, yeah, one and two, I think, are locked. Brooklyn, Phoenix LA, today and... play against uh, the Wizards. And I wanted to talk about the Wizards again because uh, Bojan Bogdanovic continues his, uh, his run through the Eastern Conference. Uh, he scored 27 points again the other day, and he now has a nickname. We spoke about his nickname last week. Have you heard the nickname yet? No. His nickname is Bo Buckets. Bo Buckets. <laughs> so okay. the best comment I heard was uh, was something on the ringer, and they said uh, Bojan Bogdanovic went to Washington to jack up shots and chew, and chew gum, and he left all his gum behind 
in New Jersey. So he's just been jacking <laughs> up shots. And he's going in. But it sort of, I guess, was the best case scenario for me, that trade, because, like I said, when I sort of half defended it, at the time I felt like they were asking him to do too much in uh, in New Jersey. A little bit like what I think Milwaukee are asking Delhi to do a bit too much this year, and he's better in just that very defined role that he had in Cleveland. I think they've given... Uh, Bo Buckets a defined role in in this lineup to just come on, be a spot up shooter, maybe give us a little bit of playmaking off the dribble here and there, and he's he's accepted it with both hands, and it's been a really nice fit so far. Let's see if he can continue. Um, that game's just tipped off now, uh, six all early on. Just a couple of quick score updates: the Mavs are killing the Lakers. There's no surprise there, and the Thunder leading the Blazers by six at half-time. Russell Westbrook with a lazy 28 points in the first half there against that uh, terrifyingly goosey backcourt of McCollum and Lillard uh, at Portland. So, um, and interesting to, to bring Russell Westbrook up because I wanted to talk about a game that I watched yesterday. I'm not sure if you caught much of it yourself, Darren. The, the Spurs and the Rockets. Uh, and we spoke last week about what would happen if the Spurs fall behind in one of these games, particularly a team like the Rockets that are so potent offensively. And we saw yesterday it happened. They went down by 16 in the first quarter. They came out of the gates just so slow, really lethargic. Uh, I think Harden scored 18 points in the first quarter and they were in big trouble. But they worked their way back into it, uh, just kept going all game. And, and in the end, it was just Kawhi Leonard and James Harden exchanging haymakers and Kawhi's defending him on, on one end and um, scoring himself on the other and he kept uh, Harden, I think Harden only scored four points in the fourth quarter and uh, Kawhi had 17 including the back breaking three and then he went down the other end and blocked Harden's attempt to uh, tie the game at the other end and since then Kawhi Leonard has sort of jumped, I think it's taken that game for him to really jump into the MVP discussion. So I guess I want your two things from you here that I'd like to talk about. First is, what did you make of that Spurs-Rockets game and what you sort of might have read about it or seen about it? And secondly, how serious should we be taking this Kawhi Leonard MVP uh, talk that's starting up at the moment? So I followed the game on, on only on Gamecast and then I saw the highlights late last night and my, my initial impression was, and you saw it, so you tell me if this is not accurate, but what I saw was two teams playing to their strengths, which was almost like a, it had a playoff atmosphere, but almost distinctly anti-playoffs because both teams did exactly what you'd expect them to do, right? Which was rely on their superstars. And so I saw an, an awesome regular season game style and strategically in a playoff-like atmosphere. What do I mean by that? Right? Usually in the playoffs, you see all kinds of interesting matchups and, and you're certainly with Pop, the master of you know, trying to do creative things to look for advantages and, um, and, and you know, exploit weaknesses. But I saw teams just kind of going, we're not going to you know, show our cards. We're going to let the, you know, the two alphas battle it out. So awesome, awesome basketball but kind of vanilla Houston and vanilla um, 
Oh, I think Senator. there was and but in there the wasn't. Best I mean, from the point of view of the Spurs, they threw they were throwing different looks at Harden. Like they wanted to see what works when I'm de- when we're defending this guy. So they in the first quarter in particular, they were leaving Deadman and Aldridge to mark him on the pick and roll. Uh, and then they, the big question for the Spurs is where do they put uh, Kawhi Leonard? So they started the game with Kawhi Leonard and Ryan Anderson, thinking if they run that pick and roll with Anderson and Harden, Kawhi gets. Uh, Harden. So all they did, and D'Antoni, it was a really interesting chess match between them because if Kawhi's on Anderson, D'Antoni just said to him, just stand out there and, and wait for a pass that may never come for a three, and where they're going to run pick and rolls with Clint Capella and uh, James Harden. And what that led to was either Harden's got Deadman or Aldridge on him, or Capella's getting open dunks yeah. if they come okay, for the so, double team. So, so that's a fair point. I. I missed the chess match then. So when I saw the highlights and, and followed it on GameCast, what I saw was, you know, extreme usage rates amongst the stars, which to me just looked like these two are controlling the action almost more so than what defenses are doing. And Harden at one point was 13 for 15, 6 mm. or 7 from deep, 11 for 11, or just some ridiculous Jane Harden line, right? And I go, okay, this guy is doing whatever he wants, irrespective of the switching. And that's where I then conclude, perhaps wrongly, that I go, Pop must just be letting this play out. Which is, you know, I think you just sort of go, let's just get in the slugfest and not sort of tip our hands at all. But um, it felt like an awesome game, right? Unlike the, maybe unlike any game I've seen. You know, it was a little bit in Cleveland, Golden State, but there's a personal stuff with, you know, OKC and Durant, Golden State. But that's what I felt as a, I'm not a fan of either team. I'm a fan of phenomenally contrasting styles of basketball, which is also what I saw. Um, I wanted more question on Kawhi. Perhaps um, um, I've, I've aged in the last couple of weeks because <laughs> I was on the, the James Harden for MVP before the All-Star break. And maybe it all just takes me to reorient myself and actually walk some basketball. And I've watched some Cavs and I've watched some Spurs. And I just stop and think, if anyone thinks that there's a player equivalent to LeBron and Kawhi on both ends of the floor, they're bullshitting me. Mm. And I go, so in terms of who are the, I don't want to get into this goddamn semantic debate of what's the definition of the word valuable, which the V stands for. I, I don't want to have that. Right? I go, who is the best basketball player that's helping contending championship teams win basketball games? It certainly isn't Russell Westbrook. When I watched them get mowed down by um, Portland, Dallas, and Phoenix three days in a row, and they got bombed by Dallas after a, a night's rest. They get embarrassed at a Dallas uh, at Dallas, and I go, "I'm sorry, LeBron doesn't mail it in the way Westbrook mailed. He just doesn't. He might sit and let his team play, but Russ played the whole bloody game and stunk." I go, I'm sorry, that is not MVP caliber to, to go to three lottery teams and just get bombed on all three. So Westbrook, for me, just, his stock plummeted last year. Yeah, I think the away um, form and just the overall inefficiency oh, is just really counting against him now. It's, yeah. Maybe it's just a bit of the, maybe I too am prone to the emotions of watching extraordinary athleticism turn into, you know, 30, 10, and 10 every night and just go, how on earth 
is someone that effective. Now I'm actually watching the games when they matter a little bit more. It is disgust. It's disgusting. Like I feel, I feel dirty. It is not. Like it's just it's your finer point and watching Kawhi do what he did on both ends of the floor. And I'm reminded, right, he's defensive player of the year, you know, candidate probably will be until he's until he's in his mid 30s. I go, if anyone's going to argue against LeBron and Kawhi, they're going to argue counting stats and they're argue emotion. I could see an argument around Harden because he is so he is so deficient. His percentages aren't. He's only shooting 44 percent, which I thought was actually quite low. But the way he gets to the line and controls the game, unlike unlike Wes, uh, Russ, um, I'd still put Harden number three. So yeah, I, I think I've, the thing I've, the thing about Harden is he just doesn't. There's just not any sort of pride on on the defensive end. Well, that's where you you know, I knew he didn't really. You know, we've had we've had this talk on my offline, haven't we? Which is on any given night, you can pretty much watch, you know, a good two thirds of the NBA players not play much defense with the way the rules have gone and the obsession with the three-point shot and just all this, you know, trapping and help D, you know, there's just not enough. There's not nearly enough of that one-on-one ISO stuff where you can actually just watch, you know. I just think if you're going to be talking about MVP, you've got to have a guy that at least gives a crap about getting back on transition D. Yeah, playing some... And and he's okay. He he certainly improved in the half court as a defender. Um, But... Too many times I just see the guy admiring his shot, bitching to officials, just not making any effort whatsoever to get back on defence. And I just think, to me, that's not MVP calibre effort uh, at that end of the floor, as great as he's been. And, I, and I, up to last week, I think on last week's pod, I said I had James Harden just ahead. But I'm not quite ready to, to throw Kawhi out there just yet. I think, let's see how the last 20 games well, pans out. Yeah. Uh, but I agree with you on this. I think we're we're nearing a conversation where we have a legitimate conversation. Is Kawhi inching ahead of LeBron as the best player in the game? I don't think he's there yet, but I'll tell you what, he's a lot closer than people want to give him credit for. In the last game he played against LeBron, he scored, here was his line, I had it up here, 41 points, one block, one steal, five assists, six rebounds on 50% shooting. So... That, and that was a win, obviously, in Cleveland. So, and his yep. his regular season record well, against LeBron is four. And, and what three. doesn't show up in the stat sheet is his. Yeah. So I was um. Well, I'm I'm at the moment. I'm LeBron one, Kawhi two, Harden three. Is I had a, a bit of an epiphany, in one of those games where I saw, LeBron giving a shit, and he's out there with Derek Williams and mm. and R R dot Jefferson and whomever else was the Flotsam and Jetsam on their bench. And I go, Jesus Christ, this dude has taken Derek Williams and made him a 15-point-a-game score, and he's boosting him full of confidence. I go, not every superstar can take literally guys off 10-day contracts and make them highly competent and effective rotation players the way LeBron can. And that, for me, is probably where Kawhi's next step will be to be on King James' level, is that can he take anybody? And be more of that that facilitator, and lift everyone up around him. And I'm you probably are closer to that, but he's he's still a step beneath. There's no question, and, and he's also got to do it consistently in the playoffs. LeBron, he, um, in that regard, yeah, yeah. Ka- Kawhi hasn't done it consistently yeah. in yeah. the playoffs. Yeah. And if you look at last year, 
um, when they played OKC, for example, I think there was opportunities for Kawhi to really take over some of those games, and he couldn't quite do them. And the, the biggest five shots the Spurs took in that series were all taken by Tony Parker. I think it was game five. Uh, and we're down one, five positions in a row. Tony Parker takes the shot every time. Like, now I think that that's all going to flow through Kawhi, and we're going to learn a lot more about just what his ceiling is uh, as a great player. As this yeah. season goes on, that because I think if they get the one seed, uh, I think Kawhi will get MVP. I think if they miss the one seed, it's going to come down between Harden and Westbrook. I'd throw oh. one guy in ahead of Harden. I'd have uh, Kevin Durant number three. Uh, what he's done at the Warriors this year has been absolutely astounding, um, mm. and, and he's bringing mm. it on the defensive end as well. Like he's really up his, his defensive levels. Um, this year, so I'd have it uh, LeBron, Kawhi, uh, then Durant, then Harden, and Westbrook, um, and maybe even Chris Paul still gets into the conversation. Um, How many games? Will... In. I was actually discounting both Hall and Durant because Durant's going to miss what twenty or thirty games. Yeah, maybe I'm certainly not a... talking about MVP. Just... Yeah, I'm talking about just the best player in the game. Oh the yeah, okay, yeah. fair enough. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Look, he's been special. That's for sure. Yeah, but uh, I'm I'm going to be interested. I know I keep trying to fast forward the playoffs, but I think just the um, we're all going to learn a lesson about the power of team culture and um, sustained success when um, when I think the playoffs come. And I'm you can probably again you can tell me if this is the wrong perception, but I see Tony Parker and Manu playing smaller and smaller and smaller roles, um, and that's a a wonderfully smooth transition if indeed that continues on. You know, these guys aren't playing 35 minutes a game, right? These guys aren't going to be playing 35 minutes a game for seven game series, that's for sure. They're going to have their moments and they're um, you know, probably a fantastic teachers and there'll be times when they're, they have to play in the clutch, but I, that's what I'm so fascinated to see about how can, how have they sustained post Timmy and what's certainly looks to be the last legs of both Manu and, and, and Tony. I think, in the best way possible, Baz. It looks yeah, like a, that's one of the problems though, at the moment. It's almost embarrassing how, how easy they're making it. One of the problems they have at the moment is that they, the... they need more from Tony Parker than probably what he's able to give because he's still the yeah. starting point guard. So um, that's, I guess, going to be the challenge for them in the playoffs. How much can we get out of Tony Parker and how much do we need him um, to give us uh, on a night-to-night basis? Yeah, that playmaking, what she and Manu do in different ways, the you know the shot creation, playmaking, the extra pass, the the really smart you know hockey assist sort of pass. Um, I mean, it's it's I'm, it's just father time. But you know, Tony's lift is gone, and you know he just can't get to the rack like he used to. So, I was meaning this to be a compliment though, which is a I'm fascinated to see how smooth this transition away from these two guys continues to be as a. You know, I'm probably one of many who saw this roster and thought, okay, you know, throw out the ball and they'll win 50, right? But I didn't see them being this good. No way. No way did I see them winning, you know, probably win 58 or something like that, right? 60 games, possibly. No way. So they're just almost making it look so easy. Um, I'm just really interested to see how others then in the playoff situation make up for what we're so accustomed to seeing from Tony Mata. Yeah. So I'm in, I'm in, I'm now fascinated by the Spurs. Which you, you've done well done by episode nine. I, I wasn't I wasn't nine episodes ago, but I'm there now. That that Houston game, I guess the study in contrast. Now I bring it on. 
I love the contrasting style. I love it. Yeah, it's, it's going gonna, it's gonna to make for some fascinating matchups in the playoffs. I wanted to, to finish today. We were talking about a little Australian hoops, though. We're both based here in Australia. And the first thing, I'd give a shout out, I suppose, to the Perth Wildcats, who just won their second uh, NBL title in a row. Uh, NBA former NBA player Bryce Cotton, and I think we'll see him again in the NBA next season, I would imagine, uh, had a massive game in Game 3 of that series, scored 45 points, um, beat my hometown, Illawarra Hawks. Uh, and I, I think Bryce Cotton might be one of those guys. We've seen a few decent NBA players come through the NBL over the years. Stephen Jackson had a season uh, in the NBL. Um, Doug Over, then you may remember him from the Washington Bullets, was where he made his yeah. main career so he came through the NBL as well so we've had a couple of players come through the NBL and, and just sort of um, get their chops I suppose and, and Bryce Cotton, uh, he's a pure scorer he was in college as well uh, so I could certainly see him landing a, a reasonable contract um, for next season and he, he did knock back a 10 day contract with uh, I think the Atlanta Hawks while he was out here so there's certainly opportunities for him but look if, if you are a basketball fan Australia I'd encourage you to check out the NBL because it's, it's been uh, I've watched it for many many years now but this season was one of the best seasons I, I saw in terms of the uh, the quality of play and I think the fans are coming back as well so um, I think it is starting to grow again that's sort of starting to find its niche uh, in the Australian sporting market but on a larger scale I wanted to talk and we're going to try and have a, a segment every week where we talk about Australian players in the NBA. One player I particularly want to talk about today was Dante Exum, who he's a little bit similar to Brandon Ingram for me because I've watched him a number of times and I'm still trying to work out what is he going to be, what, what's his skill, what's he bringing to the game. Um, doesn't seem to be a great shooter night to night he can he can have decent nights but I mean over his career he's shooting 27% from three um, his overall field goal percentage is just over 40 not putting up a lot of assists not putting up a lot of points um, even by his per 36 numbers but he's had a little bit of a recent uh, period last sort of 10 to 12 games where he is showing something for the Jazz to the point where there's suggestions, and these are sort of suggestions from NBA insiders, so take it with a little bit of a grain of salt, but the fact that they haven't re-signed George Hill, and they may very well not re-sign George Hill, is a show of the faith that they have in Dante Exxon, and they think, if not even next season, certainly by season after, he's ready to take on um, their starting point guard position, which could mean a, a reunion for George Hill in San Antonio, which I'd love to see, but I guess to keep it on the Dante Exum side of things, have you seen much of Dante Exum? And if you I have, have. What, you've sort of, what, what are your thoughts on his game? Well, I've seen um, I've seen probably oh, a half dozen or so Jazz games this year, maybe a few more. Mostly because I follow, I'll be honest, Rudy Gobert is my fantasy starting center. So I <laughs> and I have an I have an irrational love of Rodney Hood. I just love the way he moves around the floor. He's good. I don't know why he doesn't get more usage, but. Um, I digress. What I see in Exum is uh, I see a player who's on, this is a transition year for him, where I see having gone through the ACL stuff, and when you spend, I know this firsthand, when you spend so much time with thinking about your body and rehabilitation and strength building and away from basketball activity, you know, that, that does something to you. So especially a young kid who's away from that game, 
this is a massive transition year for him, just getting his head wrapped around the rhythms of what 82 games is like and the ups and downs of being in and out of the rotation and ups and downs of three games and four nights and just the whole mental side of the game. And then similarly physically, where I, I, I'd have to go back and check, but I, I don't know if he's as explosive as you know, I thought he was when I remember him you know, around the draft time, I guess the bits that I saw about him. But, um, but again, the transition to the guy physically, both trying to get his legs underneath him and just trusting his body you know, to do the things that it was able to do. And so I have I had watched Jabari, right, and you know, blow his ACL at the same age, then take the full year coming back where Jabari wasn't the real Jabari. Even though he was healthy and he played seventy some games last year, Jabari wasn't Jabari until this season. And so I think there's a lot of optimism I see in Exum in a and I contrast him in a way to Moutier, who Moutier probably more physically looks ready, but boy howdy. There's there's a lot of bad habits in Moutier that I see, but I just don't see Exum. So I see a more sophisticated kind of skill level among Zante. So I'm, I'm optimistic about him. I, I'd like for him just to stay healthy. I'd like for him to stay in that, you know, in the Quinn Snyder stability of that sort of environment. And I, I'd like it. So I go, there's no reason for me to have, have doubts at this point. I don't know. What, what do you see? What do I think, look, I mean, he's only 21 still. Obviously, yeah. he, he missed the whole season. Um, I, I'm just, I guess, encouraged to hear internally that, yes, they're seeing some development from him. Um, yeah. The games I've seen him, at times he, he looks like he looks really good, comes off, hits a few threes, looks, shows some playmaking. Um, I agree with you. I don't think we've seen much athleticism from him. Maybe that will come in time uh, as, he, as he fills out a little bit in his body. Um, but... I guess I, I just haven't seen... I, I see a player that looks lost at other times, I guess. And you just yeah. wonder, which is it? Is, it? is he going to make the, the leap to go up and really understand the game? Or is he going to continue to struggle? And I guess enough. I've heard from enough people that I've got respect in in terms of their NBA opinions, not just in terms of Utah, other people that have watched him play, that are very confident that this, guy's, this kid's going to get it. And he's going to be a starting point guard for the Utah Jazz going forward. And what made me sit up and take notice was when I read the fact that they hadn't, one of the reasons they hadn't offered George Hill, because I believe there was a chance they could have re-signed him already, um, was the thinking that uh, Dante Exum could be our point, starting point guard as soon as next season. So I thought, and then I sort of looked, dug a bit deeper. He's per 36 minute figures just in the last little bit were a lot better. Um, than what they had been, and then he actually started and played 25 minutes yesterday against uh, the Pelicans. Didn't put up great numbers, but it was a win for the Jazz, and I think at the moment they're sort of just taking him slowly, slowly up. And, and again, good coaching by Quinn Snyder, not asking him to do things that are out of his comfort zone. And, and to your point from earlier, I'd suggest they're probably saying to him this year, maybe they said something as simple as, get the turnovers down, just not as many turnovers this season. I mean, he's still averaging 3.4 a game, so maybe that's not working so well. Um, oh, sorry, no, he's averaging uh, 2.3 a game per 36 minutes because that's what I try and look at um, with Dante because he's not playing a, a great deal of minutes night to night. So to try and see, project it out, what is he going to try and what is he going to produce as a starter? So I'm still yeah. bullish on his future. Um, 
but I, I think I would have liked to have seen a bit more by now. But again, you've just got to pull yourself up a second and say, this guy's only 21. And, you know, 10 years ago, a 21-year-old yeah. would still be in college potentially. Or probably we're going back oh. longer than that, actually. But um, it, 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 it can be difficult. I'll tell you what I don't see. And I say in a good way, I don't <laughs> see, as I mentioned, a lot of the bad habits of forcing stuff the way I see young point guards like Moutier force things. Yep. It just aren't there. Yep. But I also don't, right, and perhaps this is never his game, I also don't see that explosiveness of a shooter, you know, the way Atlanta turned over the reins to shooter this year. Who's, he's just athletically gifted, that kid, isn't he? But at the same time, he's also, and he'll probably pick this up next time, his attitude's getting him into trouble even within the locker room. Mm. Um, we'll talk about that next time. So I, I don't see that either from him. So I also don't see the, ex, the explosiveness. I also don't see any of that immaturity on the court the way Moutier does or from an attitude the way Schroeder displays it. So he's got, he appears to have the right makeup, which perhaps is going to be as important as anything in a Utah where I, my impression um, is that he'll, he will be asked to be more of a floor general type point guard than this, you know, 20-point-a-game, you know, sort of player the way, you know, Lent is effectively as sure to become. Well, he'll be, yeah, basically, yeah. he'll be um, George Hill. I think he'll that's, be George Hiller. That's I know a bit, of, a bit of recency bias, but I see a similar body type like a Tyler Ulis, right? He's not huge. Mm. I think Exum probably has, he seems to have more upside. He's longer than Ulis. But that's that style of play, right? Enough of a knockdown game, um, enough of heady play. It's just a matter of finding the confidence and finding the role. So I'm yeah. I'm like a nice let's wait and see, but signs are pointing you know, are pointing up for Dante. Yeah, he is six six, so he's he's a reasonable size of Ulysses yeah, he's ten, so Yeah. That's the, why it's a similar style game to Ulysses is yeah. kind of what I meant was a yeah, little bit. Good defender forward, as well. Yeah. So, yeah. and that's yeah. what he brings. They certainly don't drop off defensively at all when he's on the court. So that that's been a good, a good thing for his development, I think, and for for him going forward um, with the Utah Jazz. Yeah, I like. Can we talk about Thon? <laughs> I always want to talk about. <laughs> Do we have to talk well, about Thon? Is Thon still starting? Well, I haven't even well, I'll looked. Tell you. Well, that was giving me my, my shameless plug for the for more Milwaukee Bucks is um, poor Delhi. We'll talk about Delhi next time. But um, you can, if you do NBA League Pass or whatever, you can watch the first seven minutes of a Bucks game, and that's about all the thawing you're going to get. But um, in the game yesterday against the Sixers, the first, he literally played the first, I think it was the first six minutes, um, had a phenomenal block shot at the rim, had another one that, Block the shot, but the ball hit the rim, so they didn't count it. So effectively, two fantastic um, contested shots at the rim. Um, a, a nice um, sort of interior pass that, that got him an assist. And a pick-and-pop three where he slid to the corner and drained a wide-open three. And I go, here's a kid, kid. Oh, Uncle <laughs> Uncle Fawn. That's wishful thinking. Un- Uncle Fawn is out there, right? I go... From a from a again the comparisons to Exum right just a raw 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 sort of player, but he's in these little bursts. He's showing me flashes again. I keep picking on Ingram. I just there's a there's an energy about the team when Thon's on the court. I think I've said before. And I'll keep saying it. 
God, bloody heck is he fast. Man, can he get down the court. And so there's a, you see the physical ability to rim run, beat everyone down the floor, and then pop out and shoot a three-pointer. So I go, if you want to have five minutes of a furious fun, watch some Thon Maker. Watch the first few minutes. Um, he also did have, I think, five fouls in 16 minutes. So, so he, his per 36 fouls is like 11 or something. Yeah. It's the definition of hit and miss at the moment with, with Thon because yeah. I've seen him some games, he just looks lost. And then he'll just do one or two things and you think, oh, I'll see that. But, uh, but yeah. he, I forgot who it was, if it was Rashawn Holmes or Farrell Chester, J, uh, Justin Anderson, but Thon took a charge and I thought he was going to break it off. I'm like, oh no. It's just like I'm dumpty dumpty. <laughs> but no, I'm like, I, honestly, I'm, I, I know I joke, but it's not an easy skill for a seven foot one dude to get in the lane outside the protected circle and take a charge and transition. The team was so pumped to see that. So what you do hear about Thon, and I saw a Jet interview about this um, a couple of weeks back, is that Thon, maybe you mentioned it as well, Dad, but he continues to be that kid who is actually barking out instructions to vets when he sees a defensive rotation not work or sees something go wrong. And I go, that, what an awesome signal from a player who's still learning his place and learning his body and learning how to play the game. So it is a frenetic six minutes of fun when he's on the court. So Well, he's one of the veterans of the team in terms of age, just yeah, but in terms of uh, NBA that's experience. My, my new nickname's Uncle Fawn. That's what I'm going to call him. <laughs> you too, so... All right, well, Sorry, I'm, thank you for the shameless plug. I'm going to leave it there because I want to go and watch the end of this uh, Portland-Oklahoma City game because uh, Russell Westbrook, midway through the third quarter, has 41 points on 15 to 22 shooting. So um, I oh, really mean, am interested to see that. You mean lockdown CJ McCollum isn't holding him in check? Yes, no, CJ and uh, Lillard, the, that brilliant one-two combination, not quite holding him there. But the Blazers are leading the game, so <laughs> which is... I think even more, uh, I don't know if that's more unbelievable than, than the Westbrook stats or not, but uh, I'm, I'm fascinated to see how that one plays out. So no doubt we'll have plenty more to talk about uh, next Monday, Darren, but we'll leave it there for, for now. I'll let you get back on with your shopping. Thanks, Daz. All have right, mate. Good one, pal. We'll talk soon. Bye. Bye.